Monday. I hope you all had an amazing Thanksgiving and were able to spend time with your families or your friends and just really take a moment to think about everything that you are grateful for. I know it sounds cliche, but I think, you know, we all try to incorporate gratitude in our lives or I definitely have been trying to do that more recently. And there's definitely no better day to do that in the year than on Thanksgiving. So Um, I personally had a really, really nice Thanksgiving. It was my first time um, being at my grandma's house. I usually celebrate in like two or three years, which was wild. But it was really great to see my my mom's side of the family and I just reconnect with everyone. Um, I'm really, really excited about this episode uh, as I am about every episode. But, you know, if you know me, you know that I am really fascinated but also really disturbed by cults um, and specifically the Nixium cult as that one I have some connections to unfortunately um, and you know if you listen to my episode a couple of weeks back with Sarah Edmondson uh, we talked a lot about you know her involvement in Nixium and what it took for her to, to uh, be a, become a defector of the cult and leave and, uh, you know, really break the story, which was uh, to the New York Times, which is like a huge part of the reason that Keith Raniere is in jail, um, which thank God, because he's a terrible human being. But um, this week, I'm, I'm so excited to be sharing my conversation with India Oxenberg, who also is an Ixiam. And unfortunately, um, she became involved in DOS, which I talked about a little bit with uh, with Sarah and um, it's kind of what unfortunately what uh, Nixium was known for so to speak because you know when like what makes the news you know a, a, a cult that promotes like well-being and um, executive success or a sex cult so obviously the latter makes the news and um all of the information was kind of uh, revolving around not only the DOS portion of um, Nixium, but also, you know, a lot of press was involved around India's involvement. And I'm just so grateful for her for coming on Solace in the City and sharing her story and being so vulnerable and open about, you know, what happened. And I hope you all listen because it's really scary how, you know, listening to India's story, like she, any, it makes you realize really anyone could become a part of a cult and, um, you know, fall victim to the, the brainwashing and the manipulation that they use. And like, even to the point of like literally starving her so that she didn't have the brain capacity to even like think for herself. So I'm, I'm going, you know, way over talking about, what we're just going to talk more about in the episode. But before I jump to it, um, I wanted to give a quick shout out to Talkspace. Um, The holidays, as 
you all know, or I don't know if you know this, but um, they can be a really difficult time for people. For they're definitely a difficult time for me, and I think a lot a lot of times, even though they're so joyous in some ways, they also, you know, can be just a little bit gloomy. Um, you know, maybe you're you're not able to spend your holidays with family or friends, and you know, spending it alone, and that's totally okay. But it's it's definitely hard. I I spent the holidays by myself last year, uh, both Thanksgiving and Christmas. And it was really, really tough. And I was fortunate enough to be able to like distract myself and, you know, speak to my therapist, um, a couple of days before Christmas, but it was definitely tough. And I just want, first of all, everyone who's listening, um, who relates to know that it's totally okay to feel that way. It's totally okay to celebrate the holidays alone, but I also, want to give a shout out to my sponsor Talkspace because they are one of the quickest and easiest ways to get matched with a licensed therapist. Um, you know, pretty much immediately. And so right now, especially with the holidays, the demand for therapists is insane and wait times are months and months and months to get them into the first appointment. So Talkspace is the only solution where you can get matched with a therapist right away. So I really encourage you all to check it out. And I'm lucky enough to give you, be able to give you listeners $100 off your first month of therapy. So if you go to Talkspace.com and use the code Zoe at checkout, you'll get $100 off your first month of therapy. So even if you just want to use it for the holidays or for Christmas, $100 off. Check it out, Talkspace.com. And then the code is Zoe, Z-O-E. Without further ado, here is India Oxenberg. All right. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Solace in the City. Today, I am so excited and honored to be here with India Oxenberg, who is a film producer, writer, actor actress and just overall badass human being (laughs) thank you so much for being here india i like i can't believe i'm sitting in front of you like via zoom you're so sweet thank you so much for having me i will make one adjustment to your intro i'm not i don't consider myself an actress um but i do consider myself an activist but acting i leave to you know i leave that to the pros (laughs) <laughs> that's so but, funny because I actually stole that from like your Wikipedia bio. It says actress. Maybe it means because you starred in the Stars documentary. I think I think so, but I don't know. Well, actually, also just to give Wikipedia some credit, like I did want to be an actress when I was younger, and then I realized over some time um, that I really preferred to be more in control of my fate and not like at the whim of somebody's, you know, casting decisions. So I, so I was like, you know what, I think I like producing. And I actually really was interested in producing since I was a teenager. And then I went into production um, in my early 20s, uh, around the same time that I was, well, before and during my time in Nexium, I still was kind of dabbling in and out of uh, production work as a PA and as a photo assistant. So I did a bunch of things like that. Um, but acting was always like so much of a commitment that I wasn't willing to do (laughs) yeah I'm almost wondering there should be another word for 
So then I was thinking, okay, are people who are in documentaries about themselves, are they actors? Subjects. Like, no, they're literally subjects. Okay, so writer, subject, and badass. Oh, <laughs> well, thank you. I really am excited to be speaking with you too. I, I kind of took a little bit of a hi- hiatus of podcasts and interviews and conversations all because there was just so much adrenaline coming off of like seduced and my book and and all of the sentencing that I've been kind of taking a little bit of a a sabbatical although I still have my day job um and to just focus on mental health and my own well-being which I realized needed some attention (laughs) a hundred percent um so I guess if you don't mind kind of just telling me a little bit about yourself before you know, Nixium kind of took over your life. Sure. So like, where are you originally from? Where'd you grow up? How old are you? Sure. What's your story? So um, my name is India Oxenberg. I grew up in Southern California, mostly the Santa Monica, Malibu, West Side part of Los Angeles. So I, I consider myself a beach girl uh, who yeah. doesn't surf. <laughs> and I, I'm 30 years old. I just turned 30 in June. So during... Um, sorry, that's rice. Gosh, during the pandemic. Um, and I am a sister and a daughter and I, I have a big family. And so for me, being able to spend time with them is really important. And I, I'm producing currently for stars. And I also still write and uh, I do a lot of work for Rain as a national ambassador. So I've got some other kind of like charity and activism work that I, I do on the side as well. That's amazing. And I'm excited to, you know, hear more about later on, like what you have up and coming um, with production oh, and things like you. that. So you had somewhat of an untraditional childhood. <laughs> um so I was wondering if you could tell me a little bit more about, you know, um, what it was like growing up and how you think that your childhood kind of, you know, molded you into the person who you were as like a teenager and a 20 something. That's a good question. Um, you know, I think in many ways I, I did have an unconventional childhood. I, I never felt like I was absent of love, especially from my mom. But I did feel that I kind of had my needs on the back burner at times, because when you when you are in a big family and when everyone's kind of competing for their own needs, the the squeaky wheel gets the oil, you know, like the, the person, yeah. the person who needs it in that moment is usually the one that's getting that attention. And in my family dynamic, I had some people who really really were struggling um, as children. And so I kind of felt like, well, I'm generally okay. So I don't really need anything and I'll be fine. And I'm just going to be the oldest big sister and I'm going to be responsible for everyone. And I'm going to be a caretaker and I'm going to, you know, try to be the easiest, easygoing person in the family. So like I kind of adapted into that role and that role really did affect me as a teenager because I think in many ways I felt resentful to the res- the fact that I had a responsibility, even though I was kind of taking it on. Like it, I, I've had this conversation with my mom a lot and she was like, you know, you're kind of like, as much as I was a big sister, I also offered up 
the fact that I could do things and I was capable and I could be helpful in the family dynamic. So I think I had a bit of that like push and pull of, I want to be a teenager, but I also really care about my family. So I couldn't like totally ditch them. But what happened was while I was, you know, I had left university when I was 18 years old and I, no, I, sorry, I was 19 when I came back. Sorry, I'm all over the place right now. I guess I just had therapy and I'm like thinking about 800 different things. Um, So I, I had left university in Boston. I came back to Los Angeles. I was 19 and I was really looking for something to help me build my skills. And I knew that I had certain skills, like I had described, like I, I was pretty good with people. I knew how to, um, you know, I knew how to do certain things, but there was, I was only 19. So there was so much that I just really didn't know how to do. And it was, it was really the introduction to Nexium that kind of opened my eyes to the fact that there were skills that I needed that maybe these people could offer to me. And yeah, and being 19 and being kind of open. And I guess you could say that I had an unconventional childhood. Yes. In many ways, I was exposed to a lot of kind of unique ways of living your life. And and I grew up in Los Angeles. So that wasn't just my family. It was just kind of like the environment. So you could say that because of that, I wasn't able to identify a lot of the red flags that maybe somebody who grew up in a more traditional environment would have been able to spot. But it's kind of like, you don't really know. It's it's just a, an assessment in retrospect, like, oh, yeah, I, you can I, you can think of what could have, you know, made you more vulnerable. Yes, so to speak. And I think what made me more vulnerable is that I thought that there was something in me that I needed to fix or that if I mm-hmm. if I could improve this part of me, then then I would be successful. So I was already kind of like looking outside of myself for something to, you know, help me get to the next stage, which really isn't that unusual of like a human desire. And and most people do it. It just happens to be that most people do that while they're in a, you know, I'm doing air quotes here, but a safe college environment where they get to yeah. explore who they are and figure out who they want to be within those cons, you know, within those walls. Unfortunately for me, I thought I was doing the same thing, but really what I was doing was getting deeper and deeper involved into a cult, which I didn't know was a cult. And most people didn't until it was, you know, way too long, (laughs) way too late. So yes, I do think a lot of those things affected me, but it's a really good question because I don't, it, it doesn't, it helps to be able to identify that kind of stuff in your own healing process, like hmm, what, what about my childhood made me more susceptible or how I was raised or the people that um, affected me the most, maybe influenced me to get to where I was. But from what I've learned and what I've researched, it's kind of like right place, right time. You just can't predict it. You can't, uh, you can, you know, educate yourself as much as possible to be able to see the red flags earlier. But in my case, I just didn't know. Yeah, that's the, I feel like you made so many good points. Sorry, I was a little ADD there. So I I might have gone over. (laughs) No, I think you just made so many good points. And like, I mean, for one thing, 
you know, even before your family grew, it was just you and your mom. And, and then, you know, I know you spent some time without her and I feel Mm -hmm. like there was probably from that moment, you, you know, didn't have a parental figure. And so you had to mature and be the caretaker a lot earlier than most people. And, you know, I know in like my, in, in just like my own extended family and things like that. Like I know some of like my own family members have felt like they've had to step back while the focus is on, you know, someone with a more immediate yeah, problem. More quote unquote. Issue. Mm-hmm. And then that caused them to build up a lot of resentment. And then it's so, it's, it's so interesting how, you know, some things that happen in households all over the country and like families like my mm-hmm. own manifested in different ways than unfortunately like joining a cult but it just shows you yeah it's exactly said like wrong place wrong time but it could really happen to anyone it could and it really actually really points back to your vulnerabilities more so and that doesn't mean that there's anything wrong with you <laughs> that's like yeah. the, the the funny part is I look at myself at that I look at my 19 year old self and I'm like oh my god you just had vulnerabilities like you're a freaking human being I mean there are things that you just didn't know how to do or you didn't know how to identify yeah. you can't be wrong for that so like you could you could easily chalk it up all to being naive but then you miss a whole bunch of information about yourself that isn't just about being naive. It's just life experience. And um, I think I just didn't know that that was how it was supposed to be. Yeah, absolutely. So how did you first get introduced to Nixium and um, the executive success programs? And like how kind of quickly did you, what did you feel like you were learning things that were useful? Mm -hmm. Because I know at least, you know, from watching both documentaries, a lot of people attended the first two classes and are like, this is so weird. And, and by then like day three or day five, they're like, Oh my God, this is the next best Mm -hmm. thing. Um, Yeah. And to go back to your point about how we were raised too. um, My mom, my mom did leave for a short amount of time when I was really young and I had I had people in my life who were not necessarily my parents, but they were loving caretakers. And so I kind of got used to being more adaptable to my environment. Mm -hmm. And and that was something that really actually helped me. But I think it also made me realize like it kind of added to my tendency to want to be a gypsy and like keep my life moving all the time (laughs) because it Mm -hmm. was sort of comfortable and familiar and so it when when I was actually introduced to Nexium nobody called it Nexium at that point they called it ESP or executive executive success programs which sounds super like formal and um I was in one of those transitions times of my life where I had just come back from Boston and I was looking for direction. And so I was in that space of like uh, being open to like, oh, where is this going to take me? Or what does this person have to say? So I was already that that 
quality was already in me. And then on top of it, a, a trusted friend of my mom and myself told us about this amazing program that changed her life. And we were both like, okay, like, you know, another thing to go and try. Yeah. And, <laughs> and so I decided to go with my mom to this intro presentation, which was in Santa Monica, not all that far uh, from where we live. Um, and there was something about the intro presentation. It was actually given by Mark Vicente and Sarah Edmondson. And wow. they said um, said some things about, you know, eradicating fears and getting to the root of the things that are stopping you from moving forward in your life and in your goals. And it was like, I couldn't raise my hand high enough. I was like, that's me. Mm. I, I feel that <laughs> way. And so like in many ways, I was innocently open to somebody guiding me somewhere because I was looking for that kind of direction and I remember turning to my mom and saying hey mom like I really want to do this with you because I thought that it would be a good bonding opportunity for the two of us and it, it makes me kind of laugh now because I'm like holy shit <gasps> wasn't it it was a major <laughs> yeah bonding. like was it ever <laughs> yeah, I mean it has like turned our relationship inside out to the point where I didn't even know if it was going to be able to be repaired and the fact that we actually wow. still have this love that we were able to really grow back a lot of trust between each other is so important to me. And it was like really one of the things that's worth fighting for the most is just to have that love and those repaired relationships back in my life. And so I would, I mean, looking back, that decision to say yes to the intro presentation really did change my life. In a lot of yeah. ways. And and the first couple classes were were intriguing. And and I am I'm dyslexic. And so for me, traditional education was always pretty challenging um, because I just learned a little different. And so I was always looking for like the creative option or like the collaborative option. And what I found in ESP's way of teaching was that it was all about discussing different topics and that there were no quote unquote, right or wrong answers. That's like how they would pitch it, which we at, at this point, we know that's bullshit. The right answer yeah. is what <laughs> Keith wants you to think. And the wrong answer is what you think that doesn't match what Keith wants. So like, that's how you break it down. And that's how obvi it's obviously a cult and a very, you know, high control environment that wants you to think and behave in a certain way. I didn't see that at the time. Um, at the time, yeah. I was actually feeling very intrigued and I was curious and I was enjoying the process of questioning things, which is kind of how the first couple of days were. It was tiring. And I noticed like I was one of the younger people in the room and um, I felt kind of insecure and out of place because I was surrounded by all of these people who were kind of like pro professionals and seem to have yeah. their shit together and like some were notably recognizable and famous people and I'm like what the fuck am I doing here <laughs> like 19 years old with my mom like hi um but it it was the beginning of you know the next seven years of my life that I was spending so much time convincing myself that what I was doing was right because I wanted it to be even when I look back, I see so many moments where I was like, you know, half in, half out. And then there came a major turning point, which was 
five years in to my time in ESP or Nexium, um, when I was introduced to DOS, which was a sub sorority within Nexium um, that was ultimately run by Keith. And that was even more so high control group that used blackmail to coerce people into doing things that um, were not good for them. But under the, you know, gauze of personal growth, they were able to push people to do really intense and aggressive things. Uh, Allison Mack was the, was the person who recruited me into DOS. And so after, like, I think in, in a lot of I think a lot of times people confuse like DOS and ESP and Nexium and they think that yeah. it's all the same thing when really they're they're all under the same umbrella, which is Nexium, which is Keith and Nancy and like the higher ranking members who really formulated those programs. But DOS in itself was a real separate entity that that really is in a lot of ways responsible for why I think ESP came apart is because of the way that yeah. it was exposed and the way that it was brought to the media. So I know that that, Definitely. that probably was more than just the intro. <laughs> yeah. So I, I think it's interesting at, at like first kind of going back to one thing you said, how, you know, you were the, one of the younger people in the room and you were there with like a bunch of quote unquote professionals. But what's interesting is probably a lot of the people there, or at least those who, you know, stayed for another like, um, like six week program or something like that probably were at that same kind of point of instability in their lives mm -hmm. as you were. I mean, you were it's just 19 as like, yeah. Yeah. Like you were 19 as every, any 19 year old, like not sure what you wanted to do with your life. Um, I'm sure a lot of those people, you know, were in like career transitions. Right. A crossroads of some sort. Yeah. And I mean, I know myself, like when Mark Elliott reached out to me. This is such a crazy, crazy connection, by the way. So crazy. Like finding out when, when my mom called me to say, hey, guess who's in the news right now? And she told me, like, that he w was a part of this. I was like, holy shit. If I had, like, if I wasn't such a nerd and wanted to stay in school, I would have been on the next train to Albany from Baltimore. Like, wow. It is so crazy. Thank God. Because uh, I was also, I know. Oh, my gosh. But I was at a point in my life where I was really, I didn't know what I wanted to do. I was, I didn't love myself. I was depressed and, you know, feeling like I wasn't good enough at school. And I also couple that with always being insecure about my Tourette's and him saying this completely, you know, changed him and saved him from his, or saved him. Yeah. Which and probably cured his Tourette's. Ugh, was even more oh. influential to you. Like, holy shit. I don't want, maybe, maybe that's what I need. Yeah, I was like, how though? <laughs> I was like, I'm pretty sure it's impossible. But I mean, he kept, you know, cheering for it, claiming it was. How did? Well, I, sorry, yeah. I know that we're that you're here to ask me questions, but now I have so many <laughs> questions for you. How yeah. how did he find you? 
So he spoke at my high school. I went to a boarding school and he spoke at my high school when I was a f- sophomore. Um, and so like, I don't know, in 2011 or something like that. And he gave this speech on, um, what was it called? Uh, he gave like a, basically a speech on um, just not judging people. And um it was called what you make what makes you tick yeah. i think and like he he wrote a book mm-hmm. and um it was just basically about not judging people and being a kind person and he was so charismatic and like motivational so i started like researching him um because i actually didn't attend the talk because i was too embarrassed to because i thought people would like point out insecurities about myself oh. i don't think i've ever told anyone this actually and it was just such a transformational experience that I, I wrote my college essay on it. And that's like, I guess what helped me got into college. Wow. And then I, and then in 2016, I think I like sent him a message. I forget why, just like thanking him. Um, I never thought he'd get back to me. Then I get like a phone call from him and he's like, I got your message. Like, thank you so much. I'm, and then he said, you know, I actually, my Tourette's is fully cured now because of this program I became involved with. And then we had a Skype session and he told me more about it, ESP. Yeah. And then he had a follow-up Skype session with my parents who would were agreed to pay the money. And I was like, wow. I can't miss my stats courses. So, Wow. Yeah. So it was really, I mean, he had such a good angle. That's why I'm so curious because, I mean, I have so many mixed feelings because I, I knew these people for so many years, like most of my twenties. And now to see a lot of them still kind of championing Keith and, and his beliefs, it just makes me so sad because I just see them. I see myself in that. I see myself when mm-hmm. I seem <laughs> emotional, but I, I see how I was there and what it felt like and how scared I was to question anything to the point where I just wouldn't. And I imagine that they are also there and that there's so much, like there's so much for him to lose if he just questions that maybe he was fooled and that he's not a fool because he brought so many people in and like what it would take for him to just be honest about the fact that maybe he was wrong. And that maybe this wasn't That's all such good. A good point. It's so hard to do. And I know that it caused me such an enormous amount of pain and confusion and despair and guilt and all of these things that I had to do in questioning my own choices. That it would be so hard for someone like him or Nikki Klein to just accept even that a little bit of it was bad. Because you don't have to throw out the baby with the bathwater. I mean, the reason that many people stayed was because they felt like they got many good things from it. Ultimately, that doesn't matter because the premise behind all of it was mind control and also indoctrination and coercive because people thought that they were doing signing up for one thing when really they were being led to think and behave more like Keith Raniere. And I know that to be true in, in many in many ways. And so like you couldn't really give me an argument that would make me go back to believing what I 
had believed before, but I can yeah. definitely see and feel for those people that are still, in my opinion, trapped by this belief yeah. system. And it's really sad because they're like, I, I don't say I, I don't walk around 24 seven feeling afraid that, you know, they're going to come after me or do something, but you know, they're, they're constantly trying to cause trouble and do legal things and, um, you know, get a rise out of people and whatnot. And I'm just like, oh, let it go, man. Like, like, don't you want your own life back? Like, don't you want your yeah. fucking life back? Why are you serving the guy who is literally sitting around with his peers in the, you know, sex offender unit in Tucson? Like, like, got hello. Yeah. It's not getting me more real. But but I also see the other side, too, because I've been there. That's sorry to go on a rant. Interesting point. <laughs> no, I think it's fascinating, too. And I like because um, for context, like yeah. I interviewed Sarah Edmondson as well, and she got out like a lot earlier. And back when the Vow, the HBO documentary came out, I think that was when you were still kind of in this world. Um, not when the Vow came out. No, I was. I left uh, Albany in. Well, okay, so I left Albany and then I went to New York City, and I do talk about this transition in my book quite a bit. Um, mm-hmm. where I was working in the East Village. And then yeah. so at the summer of 2018 is when I left New York City and I went back to California. And I, 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 I took that drive with Patrick and then I, I was living with my mom. And then that fall, I began to work with the FBI as a cooperating witness. So there were definitely people who left before I did. That is 100% a fact and they left way sooner than I did but I was also kind of in a different situation because I lived with Allison and I was under a lot of surveillance in that way whereas a lot of other people were able to get some distance because maybe they didn't live in Albany and so I didn't have any other kind of outside perspective and I was being taught to be afraid of everybody outside of the group and I was feeling very isolated um so the people that left are tremendously brave because they did it when there was no information about Nexium really being a cult and they were risking a lot in, in saying so, including my mom saying things publicly, yeah. saying things publicly at that point I was still in. And that was, mm-hmm. you know, 2017, 2018. And then when the New York times came out, I was still in and I was really, really lost. How do you, or like, what do you think gave you like the ability to quote, like to see the light, so to speak, whereas the, some of these other people who are still involved, like, do you think they're just had their pride is too big and like, they don't want to have to fall on their sword kind of a thing or because I don't think, and I'm sure you agree, like, I mean, Keith is sociopath like not a good human being but some of these other people i are inherently good probably yeah i agree with you what do you think would make them like see the light or like shatter this oh i I wish that i wish that i knew but i can only speculate based on what i experienced and it was not 
it wasn't like I saw the light all at once and I was, you know, instantly better and I had it all together and I could, it was layer after layer after layer of, I guess, filling in my life and, you know, it being completely different, the opposite from what I was being taught that it was, you know, while I was there. So I had to, there, there's many layers that you go through and some of them are really destabilizing where you're like, do I even know who I am? Do I know how to make a decision that is safe for myself? I can't believe that I brought in other people. Like there are so many factors that I, I can't say that it's just one thing. I think, and this is not my um, thought, this comes from cult experts. And they usually say that like the first way that you can kind of crack that, you know, closed loop of thinking that happens when you're in a high control group um, is a sense of doubt. And just like one tiny inkling of doubt of maybe, I remember that uh, someone even asked me, they're like, well, are you open to the fact that maybe there's things that you might not have known and just that thought in itself I I was like I guess so because it's it's life there's plenty of things that you don't know about all sorts of shit so how could I expect that I knew everything but there was a part of me that really believed that I knew everything about ESP and Nexium and DOS and that it was all good and I had to stick to that narrative because that was the safest thing I could think of Um, Yeah. So it's a complicated process. And I think everybody has their own kind of awakening moments. But for me, it was many, it was moment after moment. And I'm still having those sort of aha moments where I'm like, holy shit, that's a backwards way to think that's not really that doesn't work for me anymore. That's the old program, like we're running on a new tape now. Yeah. And also the, you know, initial beliefs are like the facade that Nixim was hiding behind was goodness and humanity and humanity and all these things that if done right are great and noble. So it's got it. I imagined it just like so difficult to have to separate these like false definitions from, you know, what from the values that are actually good it's so confusing it's like you're you're turning your whole life upside down almost it's and you have to yeah now you were taught that black is white and white is black and you're like holy shit that's not what I think and you have to it's a lot of work and that's why I have a lot of respect for the people that have come out of um any kind of high control group or an abusive relationship, because I see them as, you know, very similar because it takes Mm -hmm. time. It takes effort. It takes will to want to reprogram yourself in the right way. And to also take your life back in your own hands when you've been in autopilot mode, um, which is really what happens to people when they're in a cult, because you stop thinking critically. You just think in the kind of, pre-programmed answers that you've been taught um it's hard to get out of that way of thinking and behaving yeah and especially when you've also just been starved and sleep deprived yeah on top of it why would you why are you gonna you don't have the will 
you know? Yeah. Or the capacity to even think about things like that. No, you're just focused on like, okay, how much can I eat? When can I eat? When can I not eat? Let's not get in trouble here. Let's not fuck up. Like your life is so minute. And that's why it makes me sad when I see people who were at some point, people I considered friends, not, not living their lives because I know the difference now of like what I was living when I was with within the cult what it has taken and continues to take to get back to myself you know the thing worth fighting for most to have love in your life again and there's nothing more important to me than fighting for that but it's also really fucking hard and some days I'm like I don't want to do this anymore I just want to be a normal happy girl I don't want this shit to traumatize me and and I'm like you know not my choices (laughs) yeah that's so interesting and I just like kind of had a thought because I I think you spoke um to this in your book and I was just thinking about it too of how you know which I so appreciate that you listen to that makes oh my gosh so much good oh of course I I will 100% plug it at the end slash encourage everyone to read India's book still learning on um oh my gosh audible (laughs) um quick side note um (laughs) but I I, you know was thinking just about how I think you mentioned something like there like there'd be days when you'd just be like walking around or like and sometimes you know when you were in a bad place the control of like needing to text Allison at you know every hour or like count your calories was almost like a crutch and like good because it allowed you to just keep your mind on something else Mm -hmm. and it just made me think about you know how when people feel like they have no control in their lives and they or when people feel like their lives are you know not going as expected or uncertain they often like lean on that control crutch. hundred percent. That's definitely the root of like my own things, like my eating disorder. What I feel, I always go back to it when you're so you know, right. It's, it, it, and like these people now in it are like their their lives are unraveling more and more and more. So it's like I might as well just stay in this controlled environment. It's easier, and it makes you feel like you're in control. And I think mm-hmm. like one of the easiest ways to have mind control over someone is to control their food and I also so I know what it feels like to be the recipient of that I also know what it feels like to to be obsessing about what you're going to eat when you're going to eat it if it if feeling awful or it feeling good or if you feel like you have to hide it or you feel like you have to disclose it you know what I mean like all of this control and focus on your body and on food is such a good distraction from it takes up your whole it takes brain. up everything yeah. and that i saw as like a kind of genius and fucked up way that they tortured us because it was yeah. a way to kind of make your life so small that that's all you could think of and that everything else that was going on with you almost didn't matter so you really could tolerate a lot of abuse a lot of abuse from other people towards yourself whether it's you know talking negatively or being punished um, by yourself or by other people and you're like almost you almost don't even notice it because you're so focused on the other things 
So I can relate to that a lot. And I think, I think that's something that I've had to, and even more so recently, be compassionate about with myself. Like there is a part of me that is, has been trained to be hyper judgmental. And sometimes she needs to take a back seat and she needs Definitely. to not be the one talking, you know? Yeah. A hundred percent. It actually, it reminds me of a quote that you said in your book, which was, I wrote down so much of my healing has been in, in learning to accept the silly, simple pleasures mm-hmm. in life and to not judge myself in the process. Ugh. I was wondering if you could like expand on that. It's such a good quote. I literally like, Aww love it. I want it written on my, on my wall. so sweet um, I am trying to do that every day in multiple ways yeah whether it's you know sometimes just at the end of the day checking in with my body checking in with my you know work and it's not like you can't pay the bills like you got to keep the lights on so you can't totally check out from life but there comes a time around four or five o'clock where I feel like you know what? I'm, I'm good like I don't really have anything else that needs to be done today. And I have to give myself permission to just relax and be like, all right, we're off duty now. And now you're going to enjoy your apartment and you're going to just put some music on and without any expectation about where it's going to go or how the evening is going to be, I'm learning to enjoy my food, enjoy my space, enjoy being alone with myself, all things that sometimes can be challenging. And some days I do better than other days, but it's a process. And um, sometimes I get frustrated and I feel discouraged because like I said, I'm like, oh, I don't want to deal with this anymore. I just want to be happy or I just want to smoke weed and like not think about this bullshit. (laughs) And and so I've and it changes like so and last week was a much better week and this you know the past couple days were kind of shitty and so I'm hoping that the next couple days will be better and I just need to just be there for myself in a way that I hadn't been and I I had lost access to myself for a while while I was in the group and so I feel like I'm getting to familiarize myself with an old friend because I know I feel me more so now than I used to, but I also sometimes don't. So it's like, it's a balance, I think. But it it is about picking some things that are seemingly simple and doing them just because they make you happy. And like, I love and how challenging that can be sometimes. And but like, it is your freaking God given right to be able to enjoy your life. And that's something that I think we need to remind ourselves. I know I need to remind myself of that. Yeah, no, me too. And I think especially in times where, you know, I mean, coupled out with like a COVID pandemic and just yeah. <laughs> a lot of injustice in the world, it's sometimes you just need to refocus on the little things that make you bring you joy totally whether that's a bath or music or playing with your animals or going for a walk and getting an ice cream like there's so many little things that you can just do that are just for the sake of joy because like what else are you just gonna spend what what else are you spending yeah. your time on like how much time are you spending on obsessing over stupid bullshit and then we got in balance <laughs> yeah definitely so I always wrap up with a few questions somewhat related okay um, the first question might seem really like 
and I'll leave to an obvious answer, but it could be anything. So what's one thing in your life that's happened to you that's made you a stronger person today? I think having sisters. Um, oh, I love that answer. Yeah, I think I think having sisters has made me a stronger person because it's helped me be able to consider other people and my effect on them. And it, they make me want to be better. Oh, I love that answer. I have a younger sister. so Yeah, mine are 10 I... and 12 years apart and five years apart. So it's like, you know, big sister is a special wow. role. A difficult one. Yeah, yeah. it is. <laughs> Definitely. Uh, do you have a favorite quote or a mantra that you live by? Many. I have a lot of little mantras that I tell myself on repeat, but I'll tell you one that I, I have recently, which is, um, this is my home. <laughs> and I literally, I like, because I was having a lot of nighttime anxiety where I was having a rough time being able to just fall asleep with ease. Like I would get into these little panics. And so I started to just like proclaim that this is my home. And I stand up and I'm like, this is my space. This is my home. And it's kind of a metaphor too, because like also I want to feel that way inside of myself. Like yeah. this is mine. No one can take this from me, but also spatially. So I'm like constantly telling myself, this is mine. And then also I, I sometimes just put like my hands over my chest and I, I just tell myself like, you're golden, you're good, you're golden, you're good. And like, I just have to give myself little pep talks. I love that. <laughs> I love both of those. Um, so what silly love- and cheesy sometimes and like not genuine, but I'm like, okay, whatever. It's better than talking shit to myself. <laughs> yeah, no, I think even just like telling yourself, I love you. Yeah. And, and seeing how you feel. is, is so powerful. Because sometimes yeah. it feels really weird. And sometimes it actually lands and you're like, oh, that's so nice. Yeah. And you're like, I needed that <laughs> yeah. from myself. What do you love most about yourself? Hmm. I think I'm easy to talk to. Like, I, I think that that's something that I really have grown to like about myself more is like I could just walk into a coffee shop and just pick up conversation with just anyone in line and enjoy it, even if it's just for like a minute or two. And that's partly why I've also really liked doing these podcasts and interviews is because I've gotten to enjoy just just learning about people and, and sharing. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. I a share that quality and be uh, like just so appreciate that quality in other people because I think I was actually talking about this yesterday um, when I was recording with someone about how like we live in such a disconnected world now and I feel like the most real and genuine and authentic conversations I have are over a podcast or like a hike it's so true from that (laughs) like those are the only two ways you can speak to someone for like 45 minutes to an hour about something like of substance yeah with full attention and it's like sometimes they're really invigorating sometimes I feel a little zapped after some but mostly I I I have felt really like really moved and 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 inspired yeah I hope so with this yeah yeah (laughs) 
And my last question is, how do you find solace in the city? Mm. You know, I live, I live by the beach, uh, like a couple miles. Um, So I find myself walking through the neighborhoods and just admiring people's gardens and like seeing how everyone kind of decorates their front yards. And that gives me solace in the city because I'm not really that far from, you know, the hustle and bustle of some very active (laughs) streets, but I also can kind of disappear into the little channels of the neighborhood that I live in and, and forget about all that. And just like brings me a lot of joy to just see nature with, city life yeah no I completely agree um especially being in a city where there's a little bit more nature than New York which is where I previously lived yeah no me too and I always found myself like gravitating towards the parks or wanting to see the water like yeah and just things like that which would make me feel more grounded I get a little too uh lost with pure city city like it's too much for me (laughs) I also I also take a lot of camping trips when I can with, uh, with Patrick and that really helps me reset. Oh, I love, I love that. Well, India, thank you so much thank for you. coming on the podcast today. I so appreciate you taking the time to speak with me. Where can everyone, um, buy your book or your audiobook? Oh. follow you? Um, any like organizations that you work with that you would like want to shout out? Yeah. I'd love to just give a shout out to rain. Um, they are an amazing resource for anyone who is either experiencing sexual abuse or knows someone else who is that might need an anonymous hotline. Um, they're like the premier sexual assault organization in the U.S. Um, and I just love what they do. Uh, you can find me on Instagram under India Oxenberg. I'm pretty good at uh responding to comments or direct messages but sometimes the direct messages do get lost so I apologize um and you can find me there but also you can find me on stars um if you see seduced you can see that through amazon prime um or some other streamers that offer stars and you can also find my book still learning which is exclusive to audible so that's that's where you can find me Well, thank you so much again. Thank you. Bye, everyone.